we're going to enter into part two, part two of our Wilderness Survival Guide series. Wilderness Survival Guide series. We launched it last week on Father's Day. Was that an awesome Sunday last week? I just love that. Um, you know, we, we extended an invitation. We said, hey, bring some, bring some guys, you know, bring them. You guys brought 100 more people, over 100 more people than came last Father's Day. So, yeah, it was an awesome Sunday. It was just fantastic. Uh, and so we're glad to have you back. Uh, and we're in part two of this Wilderness Survival Guide. I'm going to have trouble pronouncing that the rest of the day. Uh, Wilderness Survival Guide. And what we're exploring is this concept that each and every one of us in our lives sometimes experience wilderness periods. Like we go through periods in our life where there's a waiting period. There's an extended period where things are not going exactly the way that we would like them to go. We're not entering into the promised land of our life. We're kind of stuck in a wilderness. We're stuck in a desert. Um, Any schnooks shoppers here? Anybody go to schnooks in around here? Yeah, schnooks. I'm going, to have, I'm going to have more trouble. I'm just choosing words that are hard to pronounce this morning is what we're doing. Um, here, here's what I discovered this week when I was at Schnucks. I discovered that the Schnucks family, they're geniuses. That's what I discovered. And here's how I discovered it. Because if you'll notice, after you go shopping and after you get all the stuff in your cart that you need, then there's a little period of the shopping experience called the checkout aisle or the checkout line, okay? So first of all, I don't like shopping anyway. I'm with my four-year-old. We went to Schnucks. We had to get some stuff. Um, to me, if, you, if you'll allow me to extend the metaphor, shopping is bondage. The parking lot is the promised land. The checkout aisle is the wilderness between bondage and the promised land, right? Thank you. So and you do this, you, you look around to see which aisle you think is going to go the fastest, right? So you're, 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 you're actually analyzing, you're analyzing the people in the line, you're analyzing how much stuff is in their cart, you're analyzing the checkout person themselves. You want somebody that's friendly, but not too friendly. You don't want somebody talking to you too long when you're trying to check out. So you're doing the analysis, right? And you're trying to determine, and if you're like me, you wanna know, you want, you, wanna, you wanna measure how well you chose. So you look at the last person in each line to see if you're moving faster than them. You do this, don't you? <laughs> you are all as obsessive compulsive as I am. So, so now, now we're gauging to see who's going first, okay? And then you're coming up to the checker Right, and maybe you're moving along pretty pretty quickly. This week, I'm I'm with my son, and I don't know if this ever happens to you, but the person in front of you reaches into their bag and they pull out the 19 billion coupons that they have cut throughout the week to get the best deals on all of the products, and they start ripping them out, and you're just like, no, like this cannot be happening right now. Like the guy with the blue hat on aisle seven is gone. He's out the door. He's in the promised land, and I'm still in the wilderness right here. Um, and, and if you'll notice the people with the coupons, and if you're a coupon person, that's good. Save that money. Do that thing. But, but what they do is if they find a coupon for a product for which, a product that they haven't yet purchased, then they'll send their children back to the aisle <laughs> to get that product, right? So now you're just like, you're dying, right? So here's why Schnucks family are genius. Because they have tapped into a fundamental human reality, and that is this. While we are waiting, we are vulnerable to distraction. While we are waiting, 
While we are in a waiting period, we are vulnerable to distraction. Here's how I know that they're geniuses. They put every distracting item that you can imagine on either side of the checkout aisle. And they have especially designed it for people like me who have small children. Because on the lower aisles, they have your Starburst, they've got your Nerds, they've got your M&Ms, they've got your Skittles, they've got your Butterfingers. And if you've got a four-year-old, those are attractive items. And the child is now getting things out of that aisle. Can we buy this, Dad? Can we buy this? Can we buy this? And I'm distracted because up here we've got Mentos and Altoids and a 64-pack of AAA batteries, right? <laughs> and the National Enquirer, which I would never read, except when you're standing in line, they're kind of like, oh, what, you know, what is going on with the Kardashians these days? You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, they, they understand that when you are, when you're in a waiting period, when you're in a desert, there's the possibility of, there's the likelihood of distraction. And so today, I want to, I want to title this message, Distractions in the Desert. Distractions in the Desert. Because what happens in the grocery store happens in life. When you are in these waiting periods, when you are in these difficult hardships in life, when you're in a period where things are not moving down the path that you want them to move, and you are stranded, and you are stuck in a wilderness experience of your own, that's when you are most vulnerable to distraction. That's when you are most likely to turn away from the promise at the end of the journey and head down a rabbit trail because because, because the desert space, the wilderness space, is by its very definition uncomfortable. And sometimes we like to distract ourselves to avoid the discomfort of waiting in the wilderness. So some of you that are, that are, are seeking out a relationship and you want to be in a, a healthy, loving, nurturing relationship... You're in a wilderness period because you haven't, you haven't, you're not experiencing that. You want love and you want affection. And, you want, and in that waiting period, you're vulnerable to distraction. You're vulnerable to turn down paths that are not going to actually lead you to the place that you want to go. They're going to lead you down a different path. When you're in a, in a, in a holding pattern on your, in your career, on your job, and you're not quite sure if things are moving down the path that you want to move down, you're vulnerable to distraction. You start to look around at other things. You start to fill your mind and fill your, your life with things that are not necessarily going to lead you down the path, but you become vulnerable to distraction. In your spiritual life, when you hit one of those periods, which all of you will, where you are not experiencing God's grace and God's love and God's mercy in a, in a, in a, in a real sort of like tangible, palpable way, and you kind of feel like you're in a dry spot spiritually, that's when you are vulnerable to distractions. That's when you are vulnerable to head down paths and go down rabbit trails that will not actually lead you to the thing that you desire the most. And so today in this, in this sermon, um, uh, Distractions in the Desert, I want to talk about from just a pastoral standpoint, what are some of the key elements? What are some of the key factors that will determine whether we are going to follow the path towards the promised land or whether we are going to get diverted and go down a distracting sidetrack that will not lead us out of the promised land. And so the basic premise of this, of this sermon is this. It's that the nature and, and, and the duration of your wilderness experience is going to be determined by the degree to which you avoid distractions. In other words, your focus affects your future. When you are in a wilderness period... 
Are you going to be vulnerable to distractions? Because the distractions will not only affect the duration, how long you're going to stay in the wilderness experience, but they will also affect the nature of the experience itself. A wilderness experience does not have to be all bad. In fact, Jesus actually went out in the wilderness. Remember, he was led out by the Spirit into the wilderness. A wilderness can be a refining time in your life. It can be a period of time in your life that actually strengthens you and develops you so that when you come out of the experience, you are better than you were than when you entered. But if you get caught up in distractions while you're in the desert, then that will affect the nature of the experience itself as well as the duration, how long you're going to be in the desert. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with me so far? Okay, so we're going to look at some of my favorite stories in the Bible. We're going to look in, in the book of Exodus at the children of Israel who got stranded in the desert. And if you remember last week, we talked about Moses. Moses was up on Mount Horeb. Um, and God appeared to him in a burning bush, and Moses had been stuck in a wilderness for 40 years. 40 years he had been stuck as, you know, from the time he left Egypt until he was probably now in his 80s. He's stuck in the wilderness, and he can't get out, and we discovered, we learned, we studied last week that it was his, his early failure that turned into the fear that kept him in the desert, Right? And we learned that, that our failures, our past failures, can become our current fears. And the thing that drove us into the wilderness becomes the thing that keeps us in the wilderness. When we blow it in some area of our life, now we're afraid of blowing it again. And so we get stuck in a, in a paralyzed state in the desert. Right, But we also learned that the God who makes the desert makes a way in the desert. Right, So when we're in a desert experience, there's actually a path for us to get out because God makes a way in the desert. And that's what he did for Moses. Moses finally said, okay, God, I'm going to do what you asked me to do. He goes down to Egypt. He tells Pharaoh, let my people go. The, the children of Israel are released from bondage and slavery. They've been out in the desert for about six weeks, about 40 days at this point. And God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai. Now, this is a picture of, of Mount Sinai today. It's a, it's a beautiful mountain range. And this is actually Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai. Most, most scholars think it's the same mountain. It might be two different peaks. But God met Moses at Mount Horeb the first time in the burning bush. And in this, in this part of the book of Exodus, he takes him back into that experience. He goes up to Mount Sinai. And up in Mount Sinai, God is giving Moses the law of God. So, so Moses is fasting and praying, is on top of a mountain. God is speaking to him. The children of Israel are down below the mountain. They're down in the desert place, okay? And they're waiting for Moses to come back down and deliver the, the, the word of God, okay? So they're in the checkout line, all right? They're waiting. They're waiting for God to, to, to deliver the word to them through Moses. And this is what it says in Exodus 32. It says, when the people saw that Moses was so long, it was taking him a long time, so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. And I'm going to talk about Aaron in just a minute. Aaron is Moses' older brother. Aaron was in charge while Moses was on the mountain. Okay, They gather around Aaron, and here's what they say to Aaron. Aaron, they've been in the desert 40 days, okay? Come make us gods who will go before us. Make us a god who we can, who we can follow. As for this fellow Moses... Who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. They got impatient. Now, I want you to think about this. They were in bondage for 400 years. They've been out of bondage for 40 days. And in 40 days, they start going, you know what? I just don't want to wait anymore. I'm getting frustrated. I'm tired of waiting for this guy. This guy is taking a long time. It's been 40 days. Where's Moses? We don't know if he's come back. We don't know who he is. So what we're going to do is we need you to create a new God for us. 
so that, so that we can follow that God and we can get out of this desert. We can get on to the promised land, right? So the, the key element, first key element that I want to talk to you about is the focus of your conversation. When you're in a desert, one of the key elements to determine how long you're going to be in that desert and, and the quality of your experience in that desert is the focus of your conversation. What are you talking about while you are in the desert space, right? These guys were talking about, let's make a new God. Let's get out of here, right? We, my wife and I had dinner of a long time ago with a, a family, um, uh, a group of people that was hosted at somebody's house. And there was a young man that came to the dinner. And this, is a, this, this guy was a really great guy uh, and had a great career, good-looking guy, smart, accomplished, you know, just, just a sharp guy. Um, and he was in his early 30s, and he wanted to get married. His parents had told us, this is, you know, our son is trying to get married. He wants to find somebody. And um, so I said, you should come to UCD Family Church because there are a lot of uh, single women in your age group and you could meet them. But, but anyway, we were, trying to fi- we were trying to figure out, like, you know, this guy was wanting to get married and we're, we're at this dinner. And what was interesting is that, you know, it was a fun group. I, I, if you've ever been to a dinner party, the conversation, depending on who the group is, I mean, it can be fun, it can kind of flow, or it can kind of, you know, you know, fall apart and get all weird and there can be awkward long pauses you know what I mean? Um, and um, so, so this is one of those dinner parties where there are a lot of people who are lively conversationalists. You know, I'm one of them. I'm, I'm an optimistic guy, and I, I can just, we'll just jump right in. I don't have to know what I'm talking about. I'll just talk about the subject. I mean, we'll figure it out as we go, right? So, 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 so we're in there having this dinner, and every time this guy starts talking, the conversation just starts taking a nosedive. He's like complaining about his job. He's complaining about his his where he lives, the city that he lives in. He's complaining about, like, the weather. He's complaining about, I mean, he's, like, complaining about, he's complaining about his past. He's complaining about everything. And it was, and it got to those moments where, like, the hostess of this party, like, it would just, we'd be talking, talking, and then, and then the hostess would, like, try to pump air back into the conversation, and let's talk about something else, lift it back up, and then he would suck the air right back out of it, because he just, he's one of these guys that just couldn't help complaining. Afterwards, we get in the car, and, and my wife was like, well, I understand why that guy can't get a second date. And I was like, I'm like, I wasn't going to say it, but like I was thinking it, right? I mean, here's the thing. We can choose in our desert spaces what we're, whether we're going to talk about encouragement or whether we're going to talk about discouragement. We can encourage one another or we can discourage one another. We can sing the praises of the Lord in the midst of our, of our trial or we can moan and grumble about our trial itself. And if you look at the book of Exodus, what you see over and over and over again is that the children of Israel mumbled and grumbled and complained about all the things that they were going through. And that caused them to walk around the desert. That that was influential on them walking around the desert year after year. I mean, what they could have said to Aaron is, you know what, 40 days ago, God delivered us from 400 years of slavery. And then he brought manna down from heaven, and we're eating it right now. And then he brought quail out of heaven, and we're now able to eat that. Then he brought water out of a rock, and we're able to drink that. And then he's leading us with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. My God, this is amazing. I can't wait to hear what Moses says when he comes back down the mountain. That's what they could have said. But what they said is, man, we don't know when this guy's coming back. We got to get out of here. Let's make our own God, right? Let's just do this. I want to read you just a quick, this isn't, on your, this isn't on your slides, but I want to read you a quick passage. 
from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was in more desert spaces, more tragedies, more difficulties, more hardships, shipwrecks, beatings, all that kind of stuff than you can ever imagine. And here's what he says to the Philippians in Philippians 4. It's not on the screen. He says, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the peace of God will be with you. Whatever you're going through, focus on what God is doing. Focus on gratitude. Focus on the joy of the Lord. Sing the Lord's praise. Not that you can't express your pain. Express your pain to God and ask for him to heal, but then expect that he's going to. Have faith in him because he loves you. He's the one that brought you out of bondage. He's going to take you through. Now, it's easy to say, well, you know, it's easy to focus on those things when things are going good. But Paul keeps talking. He says, listen, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being, in, of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. God is saying, hey... What are you focusing your conversation on? You know, com complain complaining is a sign of self-absorption. So if you find yourself complaining, it's because you're, you're focused on yourself. You, when your mind is on the things of God, it is very hard to complain. If you're going, man, God is majestic and mighty. He's all powerful. He's all glorious. Man, I'm just, you, can't, you just can't do it. There's nothing. Well, you can't even think of anything, right? You can't do it, Right? It, and so, so this, is what, this is what God is saying. Complaining is just, it's one of those things. I, we had, I, had, I had another buddy years ago. I got, I got a lot of stories about complaining because it gets under my, my skin. But um, a buddy of mine, we're taking a road trip all the way across the country. And this guy was a complainer. He was just a complainer. And, you know, but I love the guy. He's an awesome guy. It's just this is one quality about him. And, and it's okay if you're not on a road trip. You know, if you're like in a room with other people and you can go, good talking to you, man. I'm gonna go talk to this guy now. You know, but if you're in a pickup truck driving across the country and there's nobody else to talk to. Um, and at one point we're like in Kansas. And I mean, this is going on for a long time. And I finally went, I kind of lost it. I kind of lost it. I'm usually pretty composed. I'm like, dude, can you stop complaining? And I didn't even, it would just, it just, just burst out like that. Just and it really shocked him. <laughs> and it really hurt his feelings. But that was okay because um, he was quiet. And later, I apologized. But like for at least, you know, all the way to Albany, New York, I was like, thank God. The guy stopped talking. It's like, you know, it's, it's one of those things. It's a self-absorption. Like if, if, here's my one takeaway for this. Today, try it. No complaining for the rest of the day. If the person who's with you hears you complaining, you got to give him 10 bucks. 10 bucks. Complaining twice, it triples, not doubles, 30, 30 bucks, all right? So, so the children of Israel are complaining, all right? And then here's what happens when you complain. It starts affecting other people. It starts impacting other people. Um, Aaron, Aaron, Moses' brother, answered them. So they're all complaining. Aaron answered them and said, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So that all the people, so all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. 
So they're asking him to make a god for them to follow because they don't know where the god that they're serving is and he's not talking to them immediately they're in a desert place and and Moses or sorry Aaron begins to listen to them he begins to be impacted and influenced by the complaining so the second key element is the the the, the friends in your circle the second key element to determining the duration and the and the quality of your wilderness experience is the the, the friends, the people that you are allowing to speak into your, to your life. Who's speaking into your life during a desert place? This is just like a pastoral sermon. Is that cool? We're just going to talk like real practical stuff. Who's speaking into your life when you're in a difficult situation? Are you allowing people to speak into your life who are not edifying you and encouraging you, but who are taking you further down? Or are you allowing people to speak into your life who are bringing encouragement, empowerment, truth from God's word? Because that's going to shape what you do in your desert place. There's a, there's a book by a guy named John Krakauer. It's called Into Thin Air. And it's a book about the 1996 uh, tragedy that happened on top of Mount Everest. A group of climbers went up on to Everest and uh, they, they wanted to reach the summit. And a lot of these guys had put a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of training into getting to the summit. And so they're trying to get to the summit. But on Mount Everest, there's, a, there's an area called the death zone. It's anywhere above 26,000 feet is called the death zone. And you only have a short window of time in the death zone because there's not enough oxygen in the death zone for you to live for a long period of time. You can live for a short period of time, but you can't live for a long period of time. So they had determined that once these, these, these climbers reached the death zone, if they hadn't summited, if they hadn't made it to the summit by 2 p.m., they needed to turn around and come back down because they were going to die up there, right? They were going to die if they didn't do it. But these... These guys had invested so much time. The guides, their reputation was at stake. There's a lot going into it. So two o'clock came and they hadn't summited. And they had to make a decision. Do we turn around and come back or do we keep going? Well, they, 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 wouldn't, they wouldn't turn around. And the guides did not turn them around. They allowed them to keep going. And so two o'clock turned into three o'clock, turned into four o'clock. Some people summited, I want to say as late as four or maybe even five o'clock. Well, they were in the death zone too long. On that trek, five, people, five people's lives were lost. And these were people that made it to the summit, but they didn't make it back down, right? Because they were listening to advice. They were listening to the input of people who were not giving them the right direction, the right guidance, the right leadership. Aaron is listening to the people who are complaining. And what he should have done as Moses' older brother is to say, Hey, guys, Moses is coming back down the mountain with the law of God. Okay, God brought him up in the mountain. We saw God's, we heard God's voice. We saw the thunder. We saw the lightning, a whole experience. And we're going to wait until God comes back down. But he got influenced. He allowed too many people into his ear trying to take him down a wrong path. And he, and he, and he got influenced by it. And by the way, I didn't mention this last week. This is sort of a side, side line, but I still want to bring this out. The only reason Aaron was on this trip is because God couldn't get Moses to do this trip on his own. So last week, remember when I was telling you about Moses and God having this argument at Mount Horeb? And God kept saying, Moses, I've chosen you to free my people. And Moses kept going, well, I can't do it. And God keeps going, yeah, I'm not asking you to do it. I'm doing it through you, remember? And I can do this through you if you'll just submit and surrender your life to me. I don't need you to be some rock star leader. I've got this. I just need you to be receptive because I'll do it. And Moses, four times, he keeps going back and going, no, I can't. Yes, I know you can't, but yes, I can, okay? 
And this went on and on and on. Finally, God got like frustrated with Moses. And the, 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 because the last argument, Moses actually ran out of arguments. And at the very end of that passage, he ends up going, he ends up saying like, God, I just, I just, <laughs> I, I just can't do it. Please, I can't do it. And God finally says, all right, look, we'll send your brother Aaron along with you because he can speak better than you do. And at least, you know, you can rely on him a little bit to speak. That's how Aaron ended up on this trip, by the way, right? And now Aaron is in this position of leading the children of Israel down the wrong path because he's listening to the voices of people who are not pursuing God. Who's in your ear? What people are you surrounding yourself with right now? What voices are you listening to? Because that will determine your future. That will dictate your future. All right. So the, the children of Israel are saying they should do this. Moses does it. He creates this idol of a calf. All right. And we'll talk about the calf in just a minute. Strange detail. Um, then after they create the calf, it says this. Uh, they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, that's an interesting line. Think about that. Yahweh, God, the, you know, the Lord God, brought them out of Egypt. Then they make a calf, and they point to the calf, and they say, here's the God that brought us out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Okay, think about that for a minute. Like a festival to the Lord, but there's a calf, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an idol, but they're still saying that they're getting ready to worship the Lord. Okay, so the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship uh, offerings. And then afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink, and then they got up to indulge in revelry. Here's the third key component in determining the nature and the, and the duration of your time. It's the object of your worship. The object of your worship. Now, here's what I want to get at with this last kind of, this is strange passage and, and a lot of scholars and a lot of different theologians and a lot of different commentators talk about this, this golden calf, right? You guys maybe heard this story in Sunday school. What's the deal with the golden calf, right? Because some commentators said, well, there were these Egyptian gods that were represented by um, like a bull. There are actually two different Egyptian gods. So maybe they were emulating those gods. But that's not what the passage says. The passage keeps saying, we're worshiping the Lord, through the worship of this idol, right? What, what I believe actually is happening is that the Israelites are, it's not that they're not, it's not that they're trying to worship a different God. They're just minimizing the God that they have. They're, they're like making a miniature version of the God they already worship and calling that miniature version the real thing. This is a counterfeit. This is a counterfeit God. It's not like a totally different God. It's just a phony version of the real God. And I, as I was wondering about this, I thought, you know, how does this, how does this relate to us? Like the, the, the temptation to worship a golden calf has never arisen in my mind. Like it's just never one of those things where it's like, should I worship the Lord or, or should I worship a golden calf? It's just never come up for me, right? And so I'm like, how does the golden calf even relate? Like what is that dynamic? And what I figured out is we do this all the time. We worship things or adore things or pursue things that are a phony version of the real thing, right? So if we're waiting on love, then we'll turn to lust. If we're waiting on purpose, we might settle for power. 
If we're, if we're waiting on meaning, we might settle for money. If we're waiting on integrity, we might, we might settle for instant gratification. You see, we do it all the time. It's not in, in the form of, of a calf, but all the time, instead of worshiping the true God, we minimize what the true God is, and we start to worship that. We fake ourselves into believing that we're actually worshiping the real thing. That's what they said. They said, we're worshiping the Lord through the calf. There was, a, there was an, uh, an Italian painter, Beltracchi was his name. And Beltracchi was a guy who was actually a really good artist, really good artist. And he tried to make these really you know, beautiful paintings, and, um, but nobody bought them. Like nobody would buy these paintings. This guy couldn't make a living. It was really hard, just wasn't working out, right? And so Beltracchi started making replicas of famous uh, painters, started making replicas. And people started going, oh, that's really nice. Like, that's a, re- that's a replica of a Picasso. That's really nice. Well, then Beltracchi took it another step, and he started making paintings that he imagined the famous artist might make if they were around, and, uh, but this, like, hadn't been discovered. So then he starts, and you can see where this is going, right? So he starts making paintings, and pretty soon he starts claiming that the famous artist made the painting. This guy is the biggest, became the, basically the biggest art forger on the planet. He made hundreds of millions of dollars in art for it. His, his, his paintings have sold at Christie's and Sotheby's and every imaginable, like everybody bought it, right? Because what can happen in our lives is sometimes when we're waiting for the real thing, we settle for the imitation. When we're waiting for God's invitation, we settle for the imitation. We start taking down, we start going down a path that isn't the real path, and we call it the real path because it brings us comfort in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our difficulty. I'm going to close with this. This, this. this happened with Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. If you remember, this is another wilderness moment. Jesus, the scripture said, was led out into the wilderness where he was to be tempted by the enemy, by the devil. He's getting ready to launch a ministry where he's going to change the world. Every single one of us are here because of what he did on that day. And he's going he's gonna to launch this ministry worldwide. And the scripture says that Satan took him up on the pinnacle of the temple. And Satan said, hey, listen, if you'll do what I say, I will give you all of the kingdoms of the world. They'll be yours. I'll give you everything. I'll give you the lands. I'll give you the people. I'll give you, I'll just hand it over to you. You'll have all of this, right? And Jesus is faced with a moment here. Because either he can accept the imitation and get it right now, the instant gratification of having the power and dominion over the kingdom of the world. And, you know, that was his mission anyway, was to bring the kingdom of God to the whole world, right? Either I can get it right now, or I can suffer and die, be crucified, go through pain, go through hardship, go through difficulty, but then it's the real thing, you know? Jesus said, look, appreciate the offer, but I'm going to wait on the real thing. Today, I wonder for you, where are you tempted to be distracted from the promise that God has for you? Like what area of your life right now do you know that God has a promise for you, but you're accepting the imitation version of it? Because it turns out, and this is, this is reality, it turns out that the promise is so far greater than the imitation The promised land is so much greater than a golden calf that's going to lead you around the desert a million times. But you got to wait on the promise. 
You got to go through the wilderness to get to the promise. God has a promise for your life that is so much more beautiful than all of the distractions around you. All of the distractions that tempt you. All of the things that you know right now. You know right now. Located in your own mind. I don't know what yours is. I know what some of mine are. Where I go, I know what the real thing is. I know where the Holy Spirit wants me to go. I know what God actually wants for me in this area of my life. But I'm tempted to turn to the side and accept the distraction. And if I'm really going to deceive myself, I'll call the distraction the real thing. That'll bring me comfort to think that, hey, I'm actually worshiping God. No, I'm not. I'm worshiping the distraction. Where is that thing for your life? Because when we as a people determine together, collectively, we're going after the real thing. We're going after God's vision for the world. We're not going to settle on being religious. We're not going to settle on just coming together and having like a good time. I love having a good time. Love it. We celebrate God. But we're not going to settle for that. We're not going to settle for just like a shot of juice and like, wow, that was cool, and back out. We're going we're gonna to pursue God with everything we got. We're going to wait. We're going to go to the top of the mountain, and we're going to wait for God to reveal himself to us. And when he takes us into desert places, wilderness places, we're going to allow him to use those places to shape us, mold us, guide us, direct us, and lead us towards the promise that he has for us. When Moses came back down the mountain 40 days later, he seized the golden calf. Scripture says Moses crushes the golden calf into dust and then burns it, sets it on fire, and then grinds it some more and throws it into the, to the river. Because what Moses is doing is saying, guys, get the distractions out of your life. God's got a promise for us, and we're going towards the promise. Today I'm inviting you, let's go for the promise. Let's crush the distractions, and let's pursue God's promise. Let's pray. God, I just come before you right now. I, I, God, your word is like, it just, it hits each and every one of us right where we are. And every single one of us know precisely what is going on in this story, and we know precisely what is going on in our lives in this area of pursuing your promise or getting distracted in our desert. And I pray, God, that every single person in this congregation would make a choice today like the children of Israel had to make a choice. Are we going to pursue the distraction or are we going to pursue the promise? Are we going to eradicate those things from our life that, that, that take us around and around and around the desert that are imitation versions of the real thing? Or are we going to go after you and pursue you and pursue the, the, the glory and the power and the joy of the promise that you have for us? God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us strength, strength, strength to avoid the distractions and to pursue your promise. I pray this for every single person in this auditorium today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.